He asked me to read uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. And don't worry, it's not one of those 85-verse chapters. <laughs> I was nervous. Um, so it's a, it's a short one, but it's a really, really good one. So we'll begin with Isaiah, chapter 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it, Without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace from the mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees in the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine needle. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are sovereign. You are almighty. You are eternally holy. Lord, you give us without cost, because Christ has paid all. You give us wine and milk out of your great love for us. Your love for us who are sinful, who fall short, who cannot compare to you, but you love us, Lord, in spite of all that we are. Father, we just thank you for your word, for your forgiveness, but mostly for loving us, those who deserve nothing. We just thank you again for your glory and your love, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Well, church, good morning. Could you do better? Good morning. Good morning. All right. Hey, welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. At this point in time, we will be in several various chapters uh, throughout the Old and New Testament, so hopefully you can uh, find your way. Uh, if you can't, if you don't have your own Bible, there's a Bible in the pew back in front of you. 
And if you don't have access to either of those, the text should be up on the screen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed a change of scenery a little bit this morning, but we are starting a new sermon series on uh, the seven deadly sins, a biblical study on what has historically been called the seven deadly sins. And in part one this morning, I want us to look at how we as Christians go about fighting sin, not just these seven sins, which we'll look at in detail in the weeks and months to come, but all sin, any sin. How do we fight sin? Well, we simply do it by love and war. Love and war. That's how we fight sin. That's what we're going to be taking a look at this morning. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for the morning, and we pray your blessings on the teaching and preaching of your word. We pray that our hearts would be soft, good, fertile soil, so that the seed of the word might uh, take root and would produce much fruit in our lives for our joy and for your glory. And we ask it in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. I'd like to begin our sermon series this morning by reading the introduction of a book. Now, it's a book that you will hear me quote over and over again, uh, along with uh, another book that I used to prepare for this sermon series, and it's a book by the name of Killjoys. And the author of this particular section, the introduction to the book, is a man by the name of Marshall Seagal, and he introduces us to the subject of the seven deadly sins in his book, Killjoys, uh, by using this short story. So I'd like to read to you the introduction both to the book and to our sermon series. He writes this, this story, this parable, if you will. His wife was gone. Sure, last night looked a lot like many nights recently. She had walked out many times before. But this, this was different. The abandonment, the adultery, and the deception had mounted a massive assault on both their marriage and their family. Had it been just three men in six months, he feared that there may be more. Again and again, she had, she had wrecked the family's affairs with her own, spent and overspent the family budget to please another guy, another illicit, irrational, imaginary love. Their marriage, once sweet, had become a nightmare. Those first days, maybe even months of marital bliss, felt so, so distant and, and unfamiliar. It was hard for her husband to believe that they were even real. Two children, a son and a daughter, were the real victims. They were conceived and, and raised in a home of despair. Their dad had always hoped that things would change, had always prayed that things would be better. better. He'd even promised that things would look different, that the loneliness and the betrayal that they had known would be turned for good. Not knowing what to say to his kids this night, he knelt down by their beds and he prayed this prayer. God, God, please rescue my bride, the mother of my precious children from this destructive, suicidal path. She's left us for other lovers, believing that with them she'll find the protection and the affection that she craves for as long as she runs from the promises that we made together as a family. God graciously cause her, cause her to be unsatisfied, empty, and lonely. Maybe then, maybe then in her great despair she will remember us. She'll come back and be both wife and and mom again. If she would only come home, God, I would welcome her into my arms and in my heart as if it were our very wedding day. I would love her as if she were never lost. 
God, please bring her home for the sake of your name. Well, several years had passed from that prayerful night. And on a hot August afternoon, the husband was walking downtown through a local park. His oldest, now a teenager, had left an assignment at home on the kitchen table, so he dutifully was dropping it off at her school. He could walk from his office, and he usually enjoyed the break, but it was an uncomfortable day. Temperatures that day were a record high, leaving most people inside until the evening. As he walked, he noticed someone. It was the figure of a woman who seemed altogether familiar, the only person he'd seen since he had left the office. As he got closer, he noticed that she looked, looked exhausted, disheveled, and, and, and quite desperate. She was squeezing every last drop out of a public drinking fountain, clinging to it as if she might die if she didn't have some. As he walked closer, he started to make out her face. And of course, it was her. Hannah? Hannah, is that you? He looked into her eyes and saw the face that he knew so well, the woman who had hurt him oh so deeply. She was still his wife. She looked around, uncomfortable, waiting for someone else to to walk by and discover her shame. She had left so much for so very little. She left the provision, the safety, the intimacy of of a truly good man for the treadmill of temporary pleasure and terrible, destructive even, life choices. The other men to her had always seemed so attractive, so appealing, but they never satisfied, satisfied her thirst. And the relationships never lasted. Hannah, why are you out here? The man said. I have, I have nowhere else to go. I have, I have to get away from him, she said. I'm tired and I'm, I'm scared and, and I'm thirsty. Come home, Hannah. Come home. You know that I will take care of you. Whatever you need, I will provide. I will protect you. You will never be thirsty again. After several hard, awkward moments of silence, she finally looked at his face, feeling lost, embarrassed, even ashamed. And he was, he was could it be he was smiling? It wasn't a cute, naive smile. No, it was something deeper, more refined, more durable. I love you, she, he said. You couldn't, she couldn't believe what she was seeing. She couldn't believe what she was hearing. But you don't, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. No, Hannah, I do know. I know about the men. I know about the one at your apartment right now. I know about the six who came before him. No, I do know each of their names. No, you don't understand. I'm not, I'm not worthy of you anymore, Hannah said. Hannah, I never loved you because you were worthy. No, I loved you because you were mine. Seagal then applies this story to us. He says this. He says, we, me and you, all of us, we all are Hannah, each of us. And the names of our seven affairs are pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, and lust. And the betrayed, the betrayed husband, yet faithful, is Jesus. Our first love our lost love, and again, our new love. Seagal's image, of course, taken from the very familiar story of 
Hosea introduces us to the first point of our sermon. And it's simply this, that sin is adultery against God, the great lover of our souls, and that temptation, they are the mistresses that lure us away from God, our beloved husband. And it reminds us at the outset of this study of these seven deadly sins that these sins, like every sin, ultimately is a misdirected, disordered love, which of course gives us a clue as to how we are to fight them. But it leads us to our first point. And our first point is simply this, is that sin, these seven deadly sins and every sin, is an act of spiritual adultery. When you read in the Old Testament, and when you read through the New Testament, you find over and over again that the Bible likens the relationship that God has with his people, both, both new and old, to a marriage. That is that God is the faithful husband, and that we as his people at times can be unfaithful, adulterous people. And so the image of marriage is a very strong image that God gives of our relationship with him. We see it in numerous places. Just a few, uh, Isaiah 54, verse 5. Jeremiah 3, verse 14. When you look in, in the New Testament, Revelation 19, 7 and 21, 9, all use this image of our relationship with God as a marriage. And so then it makes sense that when we, his people, break that relationship through sin, through rebellion, through what the Bible often identifies as idolatry, that is pursuing higher loves, pursuing satisfaction in places outside of God, the Bible equates it then to spiritual adultery. That is forsaking the satisfying love of our faithful spouse God for the futile promise that sin tempts us to believe is there. In reality, in life, when a spouse cheats on another spouse, they have come to believe a lie. They've come to believe a lie that someone else can satisfy their needs more than their spouse. Maybe it's their emotional needs, their sexual needs, their physical, financial, social, whatever it may be. They have believed the lie that someone else is better than their spouse. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when we sin, God says, that's what it's like. We've come to believe the lie that sin is more satisfying than an obedient pursuit of a relationship with God. I want to give you a couple examples. The first one is on the screen. It's from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 16. Notice the imagery of adultery. Moses writes this. And the Lord said to Moses, You are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people, that is, the nation of Israel, will soon, notice the word, prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will do what? They will forsake me and break the covenant that I made with them. And so in the Old Testament, over and over again, we see God's people, when they forsake the covenant, when they pursue sin over God, God likens it to spiritual adultery. They're leaving the source of all goodness and satisfaction and joy for lesser pleasures. Again, in the New Testament, James 4.4, we have this very strong image. James writes to the Christians there of his day, and he writes this. He says, you adulterous, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
these two passages and numerous others that I can't, don't have time to list support what historians and theologians, those who have studied the Bible, have observed about sin for millennia. That is, in the words of Brian Hedges, that sin is a confused attempt to secure happiness apart from God. One author by the name of DeYoung says, sin is basically a misguided pursuit of happiness. That is, it's a substitute. We substitute a lesser and a false happiness for what only a right relationship with God can offer. One of my favorite authors, John Piper, Pastor John Piper, uh, says that sin, the essence of sin is basically, basically the suicidal abandonment of joy. That's what sin is, because joy is found in God alone. I'd like to share with you how this author, uh, Seagal, describes the lies, the whispers, the, the whispers of the mistresses of these seven sins. What, what, what are the lies that they breathe out our way, that they speak to us, that they want us to believe about finding superior satisfaction in sin rather than God? Notice what he says. He says, they're the cruelest and the most dangerous bond girls, each beautiful and breathing her own set of lies outrageous lies, and yet they're strangely sweet and even compelling. He says pride. Pride puts herself above God. She foolishly and even suicidally contends with supremacy of God, opposing him and inviting his wrath. He says envy. Envy can't help but being unhappy at the blessings and the fortune of others. She seethes as others succeed. And even secret secretly smiles when they fail. What's the whisper of anger? Well, the mistress of anger says that it's a vicious attempt to protect a flawed love. Sinful anger explodes over selfish, even irrelevant things, and yet carelessly overlooks the things that both offend God and dishonor people. Sloth, he says. Sloth desperately attempts to control life in order to preserve her comforts dreading being interrupted by the needs of others. She is a lazy soul, bored with God and doomed to a slow death. What about greed? What does the mistress of greed offer? Greed, he writes, overwhelms her victim with an inordinate desire for wealth and possessions. She covets what what she shouldn't or too desperately and impatiently wants what she should. What about gluttony? Gluttony's whispers is that it says, look to food. Look to food to satisfy a deeper craving, whether it be for comfort or for purpose or for control. He writes, gluttony worships foods. What about lust? Lust is a sexual desire, he writes, that dishonors its object and disregards God. She irrationally seizes sex for selfish gain, believing its pleasure will fill the emptiness that she feels. These seven sins that we'll be talking about are mistresses. They whisper lies in our ears about a false pleasure that is better than God, and yet we know that that is not true. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 2. I want to show you an image. It's a very strong image in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, because the prophet Jeremiah, when speaking to wayward Israel, God's people that had gone astray, I want us to notice the imagery that he describes the idolatry of the people 
the idolatry of the people as they pursued greater pleasures other than God. Jeremiah 2, verses 12 through 13. Notice what the prophet says. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. What are those two sins? Well, number one, they have forsaken me. Notice how God describes himself. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Okay, sin sin number one, they forsook God, and God is described as a spring of fresh, freshly flowing, satisfying, invigorating, life-giving water. So they've forsaken this source of pleasure and joy. But for what? What's the second sin? Number two, and they have dug for themselves. They have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What's the second sin? They've forsaken this life-giving joy, uh, satisfying pleasure, this life-giving fountain for a cistern that holds mucky, yucky, bacteria-filled water. And they said, I think this is going to satisfy me more than that. Now, here's another illustration. Maybe that'll bring it home in our, uh, in our terms. As uh, some of you know, just from being here for a while, that when I was in college, uh, I had a dog. And his name was Dexter. He was a Cocker Spaniel. If you know anything about Cocker Spaniels, very cute dogs. Um, I thought maybe they would attract some ladies my way. Didn't exactly work, but uh, it was worth the attempt. So I had a, I had a dog. And, and the thing about Cocker Spaniels, uh, the, very, the thing that's most distinctive about them is they have these long ears, right? Very long ears. And they're very uh, curly. They have lots of hair on these long, droopy ears. They're very fun to play with and tie into knots and things like that, right? They're very fun. Um, and so I had a dog, and he was Dexter. And uh, like a good pet owner, every day I would set out fresh water for him. So he had a bowl of food, and he had a bowl of water. And I would fill his water with clean, refreshing, pure College Station tap water, right? It was the best, and it was very good. But he had a problem, because for some reason, he thought that this was not sufficient. He thought this was not good enough. And uh, he found a bigger dog bull, and he thought it was better. And uh, so every day I would find uh, water spots all around my bathroom because he would make his way to the toilet bowl. And he, I guess in his doggy mind, thought, wow, it's a huge water bowl. It's great. And so I would find him often with his two uh, front paws plopped up over the toilet with his head down into the bottom of the toilet with these huge, floppy, hairy ears getting all sorts of yuckiness all over them, right? And he'd, he'd jump up and look at me with those doggy eyes like, don't you love me? I'd be like, you're stupid. You know, I don't know what, I, I don't know what I'd say. Bad dog, you know. Um, I was a good owner. I'd give him fresh water. And yet he forsook it. He rejected it. He, for some reason, thought that toilet water was actually going to be better than fresh water. And it's, and it's funny, right? It is funny. But here's the point. This is the exact image that Jeremiah uses. And he says, people of God, when you pursue sin, these or any other you are like dog, uh, Dexter the dog. You were dipping your face in the mire, in the muck of sin, in the toilet bowl, when what I've provided for you is fresh, clean, good, satisfying water. Jeremiah says when we sin, we too are choosing to drink yucky toilet water over the living water of an obedient relationship to Jesus. And so, if sin is spiritual adultery, and it is, then seeking joy apart from God 
is spiritual adultery. What do we do? Where do we turn? Because that's the subject of the sermon. How do we fight sin? Where do we turn to fight the seven deadly sins and every other sin? Well, of course, Jeremiah gives us a clue, right? In Jeremiah 2, he gives us a clue. When we discover that we are wallowing in broken cisterns, what should we do? We should choose to return to the spring of living water. We should redirect our misdirected love back to God. We fight sin in two ways. Love and war. Love and war. And the first is love. So we fight sin through love. Brian Hedges, again in his book, Hit List, says this. He says, Seeing seeing sin more clearly as the foolish and fatal attempt to find satisfaction apart from God should provoke both sorrow and hope in our hearts. Sorrow and hope. First of all, sorrow when we realize that our sins aren't mere peccadillos but grievous offenses against the lover of our souls. But also, he writes, hope when we see that, our, that, that the thirst that we sought to quench in broken cisterns is actually yearning that God alone can satisfy. And so, over and over again, these same prophets that use the image of spiritual adultery also call God's people back to God to find superior satisfaction and joy in him. And if you have your Bibles open in the prophets, turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. It's the passage that Dan read for us. And I want us to focus in on verses 1 and 2. Because there in Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, we have one of the prophets calling the people of God back to himself. But notice the imagery. He says, come and glut yourselves on the joy and satisfaction that God provides. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters, all you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And he's not talking about the kind of milk we have in our fridge. It's an image. Verse 2, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, why pursue pleasure, and satisfaction anywhere else. Listen to me, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Repeatedly, the scriptures tell us that true life, purpose, pleasure, satisfaction, and meaning are found in God. David writes in Psalm 1611, he says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Isn't this what Jesus meant when he said in John 10.10, the thief comes to only steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have what? Life. And to have it to the full. Again, Seagal, I think, powerfully fleshes this turning back to God out. He says this, but those who have believed in Jesus have been redeemed from their flirtation and infidelity with sin. Praise God. We are no longer characterized by or enslaved to our former illicit lovers. We are forever loved, pursued, provided for, and freed by a deeper, stronger, truer love. A love larger than our past, stronger than our weakness, and better than anything we've ever known before. He says we can be infinitely and enduringly more happy with Jesus than with anything or even everything in a world without him. Even when that world is filled and overflowing with promotions and bonuses at work, with on-demand television, with all-you-can-eat sushi. Okay, you don't like sushi? Ribs. 
whatever, right? Fill in the blank. All you can eat, whatever. Grossly accessible pornography. Always, always new and better technology. And countless other goods, he says, that become for us gods. Christianity, he says, is not merely or even mainly about correcting our bad habits, but about satisfying and fulfilling us in the deepest way possible, and therefore making God look as great as he is. Our hearts were designed to enjoy a full and forever happiness, not the pitiful temporary pleasures for which we are too prone to settle. Pride, envy, anger, sloth, greed, gluttony, lust, he says, are the woefully inadequate substitutes for the wonder and beauty and affection of God. Notice how he describes these seven sins. He says, As first hopes or dreams or loves, that is, when we put sin foremost, they are killjoys by comparison to Christ. They will rob you, not ravish you. They will numb you, not heal you. They will slaughter you, not save you. Looking to little temporary gods, these seven mistresses, for true and lasting happiness, notice the language, is a frenetic and expensive treasure hunt for fool's gold. You lose far more than you will ever find. It's like, it's like notice the image, it's like scouring the pantry for a warm sweater. It's like searching the medicine closet for something to eat. It's like opening the fridge to find your favorite book. The map inscribed on our sinful soul will not lead any of us to true glory or happiness. It will lead us in circles of almost and good enough until it sits by our hospice bed, holding our confused, disappointed, and hopeless hand as we drift off into hell. We, he says, have to wake up, scrap the old map, and grab the compass pointing true north, trusting that the God who formed our hearts knows how to fill them. And I like this last line. We have to fight to find joy in the right places. So that's how we fight sin. Number one, we have to fight to find joy in the right places. So if the first way is to pursue love, the last and second way is to make war. We not only should pursue loving God first and foremost with all of our hearts and finding satisfaction in him, but we have to fight the temptation. We who are Christians, the Bible says, are the bride of Christ. We have been redeemed from sin's penalty. We've been set free from sin's power and its pull in our life. But Christians, let's be honest, we're still in a battle. Are you in a battle with sin as a Christian? Shake your head, yes. We are all in a battle with sin. We are at war, the Bible says, with sin. The desires that we indulged before we became Christians, they, they are hiding They're lurking, they're plotting, and they're attacking our new God-given desires for obedience and holiness. The Bible, particularly in the New Testament, talks about the Christian life as a fight. A couple verses really quickly. Ephesians 5, verses 16 and 17 says this. The walk, I say, by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit living inside of us as Christians, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, The flesh is who, that kind of remains of who we used to be before we became Christians. And the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may 
not do the things that you please. So, I don't know if you know it, Christian, but there's a sense that there's a civil war going inside your soul. There is a battle, the flesh and the spirit. And so that's why 1 Peter 2 says, listen, run away from those desires. He says this in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and, and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts, which what? Wage war. There's a war going on inside of your soul. And these sinful desires inside of you are waging war against you, your soul. And that's why we have to actively seek to destroy it. Colossians 3, notice the language. Paul says in verse 5, put to death. That's language of war, right? Get your gun and shoot it until it's dead. Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Romans 8 echoes this, right? Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die as a Christian. You will die. But if, but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The Puritan, John Owen, once said this, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. That's a wonderful quote. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. We are in a battle. And so for these next about eight weeks or so, maybe nine, I hope to provide some very practical advice, some very hands-on tactics, some very warlike maneuvers to help us fight these uh, big seven sins. All the while, on one battlefront, we're fighting sin and temptation. All the while, on the other battlefront, we are turning our idolatrous hearts back to God to find superior satisfaction in Him. So how do we fight? How do we fight the big seven? How do we fight any sin? How do we fight all sin? Well, we overcome our spiritual adultery by love and war. Love and war. We redirect our misdirected hearts back to God to find satisfaction alone. And on the other front, we make war with sin and temptation and desires within us and from the outside. So how do we fight sin? We make love and we make war. Love and war. So I hope that there are questions lingering in your mind. As we close, I hope ever since you heard the news that we're talking about the seven deadly sins that you've had questions. Because I had lots of questions before I started to prepare. Questions like this. Where did the list come from? I mean, where, where did it come from? Who thought of it? And why are, we, why are we studying it? Why is it those particular seven? Why is murder not on there, for instance? Why is it those seven? Why are they called deadly? Isn't all sin deadly? Isn't this a Catholic thing? Maybe thinking in your mind. Why is it these seven and not other seven? And other questions the like. I hope you're asking those questions because I'm going to... I said, you may be asking, is it a Catholic thing? Because a lot of people associate the seven deadly sins in the list that we'll be looking at with the Catholic Church. However, that's not entirely true. And that allows me to tease you into next Sunday. Because next Sunday, in our sermon, A History of Iniquity, we're going to answer all of these questions and more so that we can kind of set the stage for a biblical examination of what has historically been called the seven deadly sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you that we can begin this study, not by delving into these specific sins, but by looking at sin and holiness um, from a, a broader perspective. 
Father, we thank you that though we are sinners that rebel against you and that we are idolaters that find pleasure outside of you, that you have loved us, your creation, enough to send your very Son, that Jesus, you in humility, came down out of heaven and you added to your divinity, humanity, so that you might both be our example, so that you might live a perfectly human life for us, and so that you might die as the God-man in our place, so that you might be resurrected from the dead, defeating sin, uh, death, Satan, and hell, and offering us new and eternal life if we simply believe, if we simply place our faith turning from our rebellion and our false pursuit of that which can never satisfy and turning our hearts towards you, the spring of all good things. And I pray, Father, if there's a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl, they've never personally trusted in Jesus. They've never never, uh, personally seen and, and tasted that you are good and that in you is eternal pleasures at your right hand because we were made for you. May they turn from their sin and rebellion, place their faith in Jesus, and may they be born again. Father, for those of us who have done that, would you help us as we fight for joy, as we turn to love you with all of our hearts, and as we fight with temptation and sin. And as we learn about these seven sins, help us, we pray, in a very practical and real way to make headway in our war against sin for our joy, and for your glory. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen.